Amen. Well, guys, grab a Bible. We are in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, we're going to be in chapter 7 uh, this evening, so we are inviting you to be there with us. If you have a Bible, great. If you don't, there's Bibles in front of you and chairs in front of you. Uh, you can use an app if you want, follow along in that. But we're longing this evening that God would take His Word and just help it to just land uh, in your heart and life. So again, our invitation is to have a Bible and be joining us in that. That's our invitation online and the overflow as well. Boy, we're just longing that God would help you grab this and it would work inside of you. So you're opening up your Bible. Let's do as we do. Let's take another quick moment and pray. I'll lead, but I'm just going to ask that God would help you and I to understand what he has for each of us this evening, that he would give us ears to hear that which he would speak into our lives. Father, right now, here we are. Bible's open. Lives here. You know us. God, would you help your truth to speak into our hearts and lives in an effective way. There's so many things that could flow out of passages that we cover this evening, and yet I know that you're a God who's perfect in application, that you are able to take your truth and perfectly apply it into our lives because you do know us. You know exactly what we need, and you're able to make that connection. And so, Lord, I'm looking to you for that, asking for help favor and blessing on this evening. May we not miss what you have for us. We ask for that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So are the bad things they are saying about you really true? Hey, that's actually how this whole chapter begins. If you're joining me there in Acts chapter 7, you might just notice they ask Stephen, are these things so? That question, that single question, launches the longest chapter in the book of Acts. Now, just thinking this through with me for a moment, that's pretty much a yes or no question, right? I mean, are these things so? That's yes or no, maybe with a little bit of addition, but Stephen answers with the longest chapter in the book of Acts. I mean, seriously, and the book of chapter 7 is the longest one there. It's the longest sermon uh, we have recorded in the book of Acts, and all by itself, that's a little bit profound. I mean, there's just something, you know, in Stephen's example here. It's like, you know, stepping into an opportunity and sometimes almost creating uh, an opportunity. I mean, it, he, he, you know, they, they open up the door like a crack and he like pushes himself all the way in and brings, you know, an incredible, you know, just message into the midst of that. And it's a good space for us to look at. So right off the bat, I've already kind of let you know it's the longest chapter in the book of Acts. And we're going to try to cover the whole thing uh, because it's a message. It's, it's a single message. And so to kind of break it up into a couple weeks would almost like, you know, build it and then have to stop. And so we're going to read a lot this evening. We're going to cover it in larger swaths, which is kind of our intention anyway on Wednesday night. We're not going to be able to dive into every detail. So if there's things you're like, oh, that's interesting. There's so many interesting things in here. Uh, but we're going to try to see the big picture and, and kind of follow the message and then allow that to land uh, inside of our hearts where we are this evening. And so God help us to get that. Well, before we get here to chapter 7, we actually need to go back to chapter 6 and just quickly remind you who this man is and take a glimpse at what brings us up to this moment. We get to meet Stephen, uh, an incredible godly man who was chosen 
uh, to serve in the church and handle responsibilities that were found there. Go back to chapter 6. Notice there in verse 3, the apostles say, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint to this business, but we will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Pause and just catch it. We won't go into all the details of what we talked about last week, but there's a need. There's a need for people to serve, and they say, hey, go find some really godly men. Find some good men. They got to be good reputation. They got to be full of the Holy Spirit. They got to be full of wisdom, and, and that we can trust them to this. And so they basically tell the people, hey, find us some men like that. And they do. Uh, they bring the, these to them. They, they find them. And one of these is Stephen. Noticing it there in verse 5, it says in the saying, please the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and goes and lists the other men that are a part of this. So here we find Stephen. Uh, Stephen is a godly man, a godly recognized Uh, man that people recognize his godliness, and he steps into faithfulness. He steps into a place of serving uh, meals, uh, really probably food, uh, into the space that was taking place in the church there. But that only really opens the door. Stephen's faithfulness in that opportunity before him seems to open up more opportunities where he begins to preach the gospel. Go and find in verse 8, it says, "...in Stephen, full of faith." and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Wow. I mean, so here he is. He's, he's full of faith. He's, he's walking in this. God is even working miraculous things uh, in and through his life. Then, verse 9, there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. Hey, these are Jews from these other regions, Hellenistic, kind of really much more Greek uh, versed in the Hellenistic or Greek culture, and they begin arguing with Stephen as he's talking to him about Jesus. And it just simply tells us in verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Wow. That's just kind of fun for a moment. I mean, here's this faithful, godly man, and that's opened up more doors, and so God begins to do some miraculous things, but he also just is able to share Jesus and share the truth in a way that, boy, they, they try to argue with him, and they can't, he out, he just out, he's better presenting the truth, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's able to bring truth into that moment, and it's a great moment. So they come up with a plan, and it's filled with lies. It says, and so they, it says, they secretly induced men in verse 11, saying, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. That's fascinating by a number of ways. It's like, okay, so this is dishonest. It's, uh, you know, trying to move the crowd. And it's one of those fun things, even wondering, like, how do we even know? I mean, God obviously inspired this, kind of did this. um, But it's an interesting thing even to wonder, you know, how Luke, who writes this, finds this out. Maybe one of these guys gets saved. Maybe Paul, who we'll meet in a moment, is in that crowd. We don't know. But somewhere they begin to kind of, you know, come up with an idea to lie and bring deception in to capture Stephen. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him into the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. So I'm hoping you're kind of picturing it. I mean, there is just something about the scene where they rally against him, all the people, but also the religious authorities, the elders, the people. They set him up there and, and kind of you know, put a, a place on him. They bring these false witnesses who tell him, hey, he said all these things, which he didn't say. But somehow in the midst of this, Peter is just, I mean, sorry, Stephen is just doing so well. You know, he just has this steadfast look upon him, like, since they just looked at him as angelic. I mean, he's like, wow, I mean, just, there's a calmness, there's a holiness about that. And all of this brings us to this moment where they then ask him, in chapter 7, verse 1, then the high priest said, are these things so? fascinating thing being asked this again, these lies that have been brought against him, and now he's going to get to ask this. Now, quick pause. One of the interesting things that's in this chapter that we're not going to be able to dive into entirely is there are so many pictures of Christ in it. I mean, there's so many things that what Stephen is going through has reminiscent pictures of what Christ went through, and, and there's something about that. There's something about, you know, Jesus saying, hey, you're going to follow me, and, and, and what I go through, you're going to go through, and that plays into this moment. In fact, even this scene is kind of that. Again, if you're familiar with the scripture, you might have already figured it out. So it's, it's there. You know, we get it in verse 1 of chapter 7. This is the high priest who now this religious leader is asking Stephen, and it's been less than two months uh, since Jesus was here, since Jesus, you know, probably stood before this same man, uh, you know, being asked that. Some of you know there in Matthew's gospel, it gave it to us this way, and those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. They bring Jesus in there. They bring in false witnesses to, to, to speak against Jesus, to say, hey, he's speaking against the temple, and he's doing all of these things. And, and the high priest asks him, said, arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is, it, what is it that these men testify about you? And again, words different, but it's kind of the same thing. Like, what do you have to say about everything that these guys are saying? So there is this little um, cool uh, Christ-like picture in the midst of this, that Stephen is, is facing this, but he's facing it even as Jesus said he, we would, and walking in that road in, in, in a powerful way. And so to that, now we get to hear Stephen. All of this has flowed to us. They've accused him. Uh, they have him before the leaders, and now he's going to share his answer uh, to what they've asked him. And that's, again, what we find uh, here in chapter 7. So once more, we're just going to make our way through it rather rapidly, pulling out nuggets, but doing our best also just to kind of feel the main theme. And, and again, so there's, there's some Christ-like pictures in this. I leave that with you. Uh, let me actually just toss in a, a couple other quick things. So Hey, for anybody who wants to go deeper in this chapter, hey, find every picture you can of Jesus because there's a bunch of them. But there's also a little bit that's taking place in this chapter that partly what Stephen's going to do is answer the accusation. Uh, you might just notice it with me there um, that it tells us 
that they you know, brought in people who induced him to say, hey, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they're going to talk about how that, you know, Jesus is going to destroy, in verse 14, uh, this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So they're talking about the temple uh, there in Jerusalem, which actually is not long uh, on the earth at that moment in time. You know, again, we're in 30 AD, and at that, that time, by 70 AD, the temple is going to be destroyed by Titus. The Romans prophesied by Scripture, kind of God's judgment coming. And so that is a sense of coming, but Stephen is going to answer. And a little bit, he's going to talk about how that God is so much bigger. That, you know, to, to kind of lock him into the, the idea of the temple would be in a complete misunderstanding of who God is. Yes, it's a representation, but he is so much more. So that's a fun sub-theme uh, that somebody else might want to dive into. We're not going to go there because the main thing that Stephen is going to press is how rebellious, how stubborn uh, God's people have always been. And, and, and he's going to just show that in a very powerful way, and we're going to do our best to, to follow it along. So let's dive in there. So chapter 7, join me as we pick it up, and he's answering a question. Again, it was a yes or no question. Stephen, is everything they say about the, you, you true? He's going to answer, but his answer has nothing to do with what they're going to say. Instead, he's going to preach to them, and he begins doing what Jews in that day, and some probably even today, really like he begins telling them their own story. He begins reminding them of their history. And uh, you almost have to imagine it for a moment because in, in one sense, they let him keep speaking. It's like, oh, you're telling us our story. You're telling us these things, but he's going to weave it in such a way that's going to help him see the theme. So he begins with the story of Abraham. Notice in verse 2, And he said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot in. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, God said. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he, he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. So he tells them the story. I mean, it's a story of Israel's beginning. It's a story of the founding of it, of Abraham, who was called by God, and how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I mean, just the, the very beginning parts of the story, and, and just helping them kind of feel that. But in the midst of that, he's showing them a couple things. In some ways, one of the keys he's showing us is how even Abraham's obedience didn't take place right away. Hey, go back and see it with me for a moment. Maybe you caught it. 
Verse 2 says, Brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. We don't have time to dive into it greatly, but if you're interested, this is Genesis 12. This is the story of Abraham, but it's an interesting thing. So Abraham, at this moment, he's living in Ur of the Chaldees. He's living in Mesopotamia, and God speaks to him. God speaks to him and says, hey, leave. Leave your your country. Leave where you're coming from. Leave your father. Leave your father's house and come and and see the land uh, that I'm going to give you. I'm going to do that. That's the Abrahamic promise. That's part of the Abrahamic covenant. And Abraham obeys, kind of, slowly. So he leaves Ur of the Chaldees, and he gets about halfway there into the city of Haran, and he stays there. But he also brings his dad. Uh, You know, God had said, hey, leave your family. Hey, leave your family. You're going to walk out from this. You're going to go all the way there. He doesn't do that. Uh, He kind of has this initial kind of halfway obedience that only takes him halfway and only brings him there. And he stays there in Haran until his dad dies. How many years is that? Well, it's a little bit hard to figure out. Many Bible students kind of do the math in the different places that we find it and would say it's probably about 25 years. It's probably about 25 years. We, we know that in Abraham leaves Haran, he's 75 years old. Uh, gives it to us that way. It would seem as we kind of do some stuff that probably God calls him somewhere around 50. It could have been earlier, it could have been later, but he kind of obeys but kind of doesn't. And so again, you can feel that. And so go back and see it. He said there in verse 3, he said, get out of your country and from your relatives, like leave your family, leave it and come to the land, we'll show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, he leaves Ur of the Chaldees, and he dwells in Haran. That's not Israel. That's not the promised land. He only makes it part of the way there. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved uh, him to this land in which you now dwell. So there is a little bit of a picture here of Abraham's, you know, just, you know, slow to respond. I mean, slow to get that. And, and he stays until his dad dies. Uh, it tells us his dad dies at age 205 uh, there in, in Genesis. And so when that happens, it's kind of, you know, the last little vestige of what's been holding him back from obedience is kind of peeled away. And he begins that journey. Uh, into the land. Now, that's just, it's a powerful reality. There's grace in that, by the way. There's comfort in in kind of watching uh, even a a father of the faith be that way. But again, it's one of these places that from the very beginning, he's showing slowness. That's like, man, even Abraham, he was like slow to get it, slow to, to obey. He didn't fully obey, you know, God at first, you know, but only after that. Does he come and, and, he, and he dwells in that land? And so then he just walks through the blessing, how God had given them, you know, this land, even when he didn't have children and promised him everything that's there. And, and yet that through the oppression, through the difficulty, which probably has some pictures in there as well, he just says, hey, this now came. God, God brought this to, to pass and you're here. I mean, that's actually a part of this whole story. And yet it was this place where even Abraham, you know, was kind of there, which is a big part of the this first little nugget. We'll keep reading. Then he tells them the story of Joseph. Verse 9 says, And the patriarchs, uh, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him, and delivered him out of all of his troubles. 
and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to, Pharaoh, to the Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all of his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb of Abraham, which he bought for some of money from the sons of Hamor, the, the father of Shechem. Okay, so we've moved from Abraham. Now we're talking about Joseph. And again, I am going to kind of presuppose that you have some understanding of that. If not, hey, it's there. I just encourage you to go and read Genesis. Uh, go and read, you know, really, which is about the last 15 chapters uh, of Genesis that kind of pack in some of these whole stories of, of Joseph, and yet we get the scene. I mean, some of you know the place. You know, Jacob has 12 sons, and, and yet Joseph is one that he shines his favor on. His brothers are not excited about it. His not, brothers are not excited. In fact, they're envious uh, of Joseph's favor, and they decide, first of all, they're going to kill him. They, they said, first of all, we're gonna, they're going to kill him. And then, uh, you know, one of the, the brothers step in there and, and say, hey, you know, we actually, maybe we should not kill him. Maybe we should sell him, you know, over into Egypt, make him a slave. We'll get money out of it. And he'll still get out of our hair. And because of their envy, they reject uh, the, just Joseph from being there, his influence into them, even though God had already begun speaking uh, through Joseph, that he would be a blessing, that, that through that, him they would be that. They don't, they don't like it at all, and through envy they deliver him, and yet God is in it. God's with Joseph there in Egypt. He's with him in the midst of that, protecting him, watching over him, so that Joseph actually becomes the one that the favor shines upon, so that the whole world in many ways goes through a famine, but Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt, and so everybody's coming to him for sustenance. You guys know the story, right? So there they are. Jacob's there, and, and, and they, you know, in the land don't have food. They end up sending the brothers to him. Joseph realizes that. He kind of goes through a whole testing of them, so that their first encounter, uh, he he doesn't reveal himself to them, but they come back a second time and he's known to them. And out of that becomes a blessing. So you're walking through this whole story, and if you're trying to feel just the weight of it, we think through what Stephen's doing at this moment. He points out a few things. He points out, you know, first of all, that it was envy that really was fueling just this early rejection. Make no mistake, that's exactly where this is as well. In fact, if you, again, know the story of Christ and you know the, the, the moments that led up to his death, it tells us of Pilate. He says that he recognized that the Jewish leaders were bringing Jesus because they were envious of him, because they were en envious of his influence, they were envious uh, of what he was. And, and so there is this space, again, where it was like envy that caught, you know, kept his bro their brothers from embracing Joseph kept their brothers from embracing who he was and what he was going to bring into that moment. And yet the whole story kind of works out, and he just tosses in this little nugget that we'll talk more about in a moment. It's like it wasn't until the second time that they saw him that they finally get it, that it finally snaps. And we'll see, hey, there's a prophetic picture in that. We'll talk a little bit more about it, you know. But once more, it's just kind of showing this kind of initial rejection 
of, of, the, of, of the children of Joseph's brothers. Like they, they, at first they reject Joseph. They're envious. They try to get rid of him. They try to kill him. They try to sell him till they finally turn around and embrace, you know, God's hand of favor uh, that would bring them through the famine, bring them through everything that's there, and, and that second time he would be known. Again, I just like that. Again, noticing in verse 13, and the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers. So just hold that in thought. Probably already there, but we'll come back and talk about it in a moment. So we get Abraham, we get Joseph, and now he adds another. He wants to tell us Moses' story. Gives us a little bit longer account, but let's read it, and then we'll talk about a few of the nuggets in it. It says, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God swore to Abraham that the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live at this time. Moses was born, and he was well-pleasing to God. He was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. Moses was learned in all the, the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old and came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. The next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, are, men we are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and, and, be, and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. Hey, we'll pause there just for a moment in the midst of the story. It's a great story. Again, it picks up right after, you know, kind of the, the, there in, in Egypt and all the things that are happening, the oppression that falls on there, and yet God begins to raise up a deliverer. And Moses is this fascinating one who, from his birth, you know, kind of has a protection over that. He ends up being raised, uh, you know, in an Egyptian household, you know, which is going to turn out probably an incredible favor. Skills and things he learns in that moment, you know, all these things preparing him for the moment that he could rescue the nation, that he could be a deliverer. Now, one of the fascinating nuggets that Stephen gives us here, that the Holy Spirit gives us here, is a little bit of that play that's even happening in Moses' heart. Go back and see it. it. tells us in verse 23, it says, Now when he was 40 years old, it came in his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian, for he supposed that his brethren would understand that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. This is a fascinating nugget. I mean, it just, it, it's, a, it's a Holy Spirit nugget kind of giving into this. It's not something that we fully understood out of the, the, the account there in the book of Exodus. We do know this. I mean, Moses is there. He's 40 years old. He's been raised up, you know, in the Egyptians, and he decides to go and see uh, you know, what's taking place. He sees, you know, an Egyptian, you know, mistreating a Jew, and he kills the Egyptian. Now, all of that's part of our story. One of the interesting things, just as a little quick nugget, is it lets us know something that's happening in Moses' heart, that Moses supposed 
that they would understand that he was going to be a, a deliverer for them. Now, we don't have time to go into that in great detail. That's a fascinating nugget for me. That's just, it's an interesting thing because, you know, you, if you read it next, you're like, so wonder what he was thinking. Like, like you kill an Egyptian, like, what are you thinking? And, but he actually somehow had an inkling of God's plan for his life. He somehow had an inkling of what God wanted for him. It's not going to work out right now. It's going to take another 40 years uh, for, for Moses finally to step into this role, uh, and, and God's timing is right. Moses was probably wrong at this point in time because it doesn't totally seem like this is a God thing in the midst of it, but it's still a fascinating thing uh, that Moses had some inkling there, and yet I just leave that for you. I mean, I, just, there, I, I find it fascinating. It has a lot of practical uh, applications even into my own life, but it's still worth noting he had a sense that he was going to be a deliverer he had a sense that, that he was going to be the one that could rescue them. And instead of that inspiring uh, the, the children of Israel, they began pushing him away. It says the guy actually pushes Moses. Like, what are you, like, what are you doing? He kind of just looked there and tells us again, just tells us, um, verse 27, but he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him. That is, pushed Moses away. Like, dude, push, go away. Like, we, we, I don't need your help. I don't want it. Who made you? you know, one who would be that. And, and so Moses recognizes this and he runs. He'll spend the next 40 years in the backside of the desert and, you know, lots of things about the calling of God in that, lots of things about God working good things in us, but I'll leave that for you. And now fast forward, he's 80 years old, verse 30. When 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flame, a fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight and drew near uh, to it to observe the voice, and the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning. I have now come, I've come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. Then this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge is the one that God sent to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. After he'd shown them wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and the wilderness 40 years. Wow. You watch this whole thing, you see the unpacking of it, and again, it's not hard to kind of follow at this moment. You know, they didn't understand. They didn't get it. They didn't understand that he was this, and they resisted him. They, they, they resisted him. Again, it just goes out of his way to saying they rejected him in verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected. They, they rejected him when he first showed up. They rejected his influence. They, had, they wanted nothing to do with him, but he was going to be the one that was going to be the deliverer. He was going to be the one that would rescue. He's the one that God would raise up to, to be the one who did bring them out of Egypt. So yeah, you're beginning to feel the story. You're feeling the weight of all of this. By the way, coming back to it one more time, there is a little bit of an inkling of hope. In fact, in your little booklet that you got this evening, we have Warren Wiersbe, we have his commentary or his kind of with the word commentary in the midst of that. I just want to point out one of the sentences that's there in your booklet. So you don't have to write it down because it's in your booklet. But it says, Israel's history reveals the patience of God 
and the hardness of man's heart. But it also reveals a ray of hope. Israel rejected their deliverers the first time, but they accepted them the second time. This was true of Moses and Joseph, and it will be true of Jesus when he returns. It's a little bit of a fascinating nugget that, you know, Israel does reject Jesus. This is their rejection. This is really kind of a, almost the, the, the final kind of marks of their rejection happening in the midst of this, but it's not the end of the story. Jesus is coming back again, and we know that the, the children of Israel are again going to embrace him. They are going to look upon him who they have pierced and say, oh, you know, you are it. You know, you were the deliverer, and we totally missed it, you know, and now we see it. So we watch this whole thing happening, but once more coming back to it, it is this, first of all, rejection that was so common. In fact, we keep reading. Israel does the same thing. Verse 37 says, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you'll hear. This is he who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom your fathers would not obey, but they rejected. Like you, you rejected him the first time because you, you missed it. And, and their hearts turned back to Egypt saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in their works of their own hands. God turned them and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness of Israel? O house of Israel, you took up the tabernacle of Molech, and the star of your God, Rephidim, and and images which you are to worship, and I will carry you away to Babylon. Without spending a bunch of time on it, he just kind of highlights again, hey, they, they rejected Moses, but that didn't stop. I mean, they still kept rejecting. They still kept trying to go back. I mean, if you know the story in that, they do exactly that. I mean, Moses is gone for a little while, and they're like, oh, let's go back. Let's go back to Egypt. Uh, you know, they go there, and, you know, they, they end up spending the 40 years in the wilderness because of their rebellion. And even there, they, they, they bring some of their idols with them that's eventually going to carry them uh, into their captivity. And just in very fast ways, what, what Stephen does is kind of weave a story that boy, they've been difficult the whole time. Like, I mean, like they, were, they were difficult in the beginning. They were difficult in Moses. Then they were difficult in the wilderness. And then they, they, they still brought their gods and they're still difficult to God. And he fast forwards all the way about 500 years to the Babylonian captivity, kind of just giving us a quick summary saying, boy, they, they just have always done this. In the midst of this, he answers one of the questions they were asking. Takes us to Solomon in verse 44. He says, our fathers had the tabernacle in the wilderness, and he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern which he'd seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land uh, promised by the gen- possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked for a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made by hand, with hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? 
they'd accused Stephen of speaking of tearing down God's house. And in one sense, he just kind of points out, hey, it was never a house. It was always God. It was never a, a space that, you know, yes, that David longed for a permanent place. And God said, hey, I'll, I'll meet you there. But it was never the, the fullness of God. They'd always got that wrong. And even in, in some of this, there's a little bit of that rebellion that's taking place in the midst of that. And again, some fascinating nuggets there. But I'm hoping that just as we've read through this whole thing, you're feeling the, the story, right? You're hopefully feeling a little bit of the big story of the difficulty that they've been giving. So now Stephen turns and speaks directly to them. Having reminded them of the Bible story, having reminded them of, of their history, he just tells them, beginning in verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Or they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, whom you now have become betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Wow. So you feel the story. I mean, hopefully in that sense, he's again just telling him, hey, you're just like your fathers. You have always fought God. Like you have always resisted. That has always been the way this works, and that's what's playing into this moment now. Jesus has come. He's died on the cross. He's risen from the grave. The, the work of the Spirit is happening. People are getting saved, but the Jewish nation and the people in there, boy, they are, they, they are not responding. They're, they're, they're not believing. They're not accepting Christ. They're not stepping into this moment, and he's just, you know, walks them through their history and says, you always do this. Like, this is always the way that you respond, and and in one sense, seeking to provoke them. I mean, there really is grace in this. He's not being cruel or mean. He's doing his very best to kind of wake them up from their rebellion. Spurgeon said it this way, speaking of Stephen's message. He says he takes out the sharp knife of the word, and he rips up the sins of the people, laying open their inward parts of their hearts and the secrets of their soul. I mean, I don't know if you can feel that. It's that way as well. I mean, it's just, he's like, he's just like, this is you. Hey, this is what you always are. This is how you always work. This could have been a moment uh, that they would recognize the truth of that. This could have been a moment where they respond well to this, where they go, that is true of me. That is true of us. And, and it could have been a moment uh, where they repented in turn. It's not going to go that way. Most of you know the story, but it's worth just noting it could have gone that way. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't just kind of point out for a moment, hey, this is the history of the nation of Israel, but it's a history of people, and it's our history. If you're looking at this going, man, I can't believe people give God such a hard time. I, I, I would never do that. I, boy, that doesn't look like me at all. I, I hope that you're able to look at this this evening and go, man, okay, that's my story some as well. Like, I have been that kind of person who, who, who resists, and even when God makes it so clear, when the Bible calls, says, hey, you are a stiff-necked and, and rebellious people, I don't know if, if you would put yourself in that category. I'm just going to be honest with you. I would. I would. I'd look at my heart, and, and I'd look at things that I've gone through, and i look at some of you and think, uh, you should. It, did I say that nicely? So, I mean, you should just kind of just in that sense say, hey, it ought to be that way. And I just want to bring it into this moment right now, because see, I don't know what God's doing. 
And I would be entirely remiss if I didn't say, is God trying to do something in you right now? Is there something that you are disobeying and, and, and disobeying him? I mean, maybe it's this. Maybe he's trying to bring you to Jesus. Maybe he's trying to bring you to a place of accepting Jesus, and it's as clear as it can be, but you are digging in your heels. I just hope you would see how dumb that is, how, how foolish that is. Maybe you're his, and God's trying to drink, bring something in your life, and you just could look and think, man, that is my, my knee-jerk response. My fleshly knee-jerk response is always to be stiff-necked. It is always to, you know, God's guiding, and I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, no, you know, and it's like, I mean, you, you just kind of see the pattern of man's history, and, and that's not a compliment, but it is helpful. It is helpful for us to be able to go, yeah, that's true. We are that. Why do we always resist what God has? Why do we, why does our flesh dig in? Hey, that's the part of rebellion. That's part of our sin. I mean, it's kind of like what Paul talks about in Romans 7. He says, you know, the law comes and tells me, hey, don't steal. But instead of that making me, it's like, okay, I'm not going to do that. Now I'm like, oh, really? Huh. Now that sounds like a good thing. I mean, like, you just, I mean, my flesh is so rebellious that all you have to do is tell me no, and then I want to do it. Or tell me to do something, and now I don't want to do it. I mean, there's just something about our, our, our hardness of heart. And again, just to know that, one, to know that you're not alone. In case you're here like this evening, you're like, I'm the only one. I mean, Pastor Jim's talking to me. Everybody else here, they're just such obedient people. And I'm the, st- I'm the stiff neck. No, you are. You, we are. You know, we are. We, we, we give them a hard time. And just, just to see it and say, boy, you know, to get past that quicker, you know, to, to make those days of rebellion and wilderness wandering and, you know, kind of in, the, in those spaces of saying no to God, just to get quicker at that would be incredibly good. That's, again, not what's going to happen, though. That's not where this goes. And so now we kind of just watch that whole thing. We've seen this man. We've heard his message. Now you guys already know. Now we're going to watch him die. Stephen's going to become the very first follower of Jesus uh, to seal his testimony with his blood. Hey, let's read the account. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen. And as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. A biblical term for a Christian who dies. He dies. Like, he he dies. Wow. Bunch of, bunch of stuff there. But just for our quick kind of overview again this evening, I just want you to see five different categories. Five different either people or or places. And I want you to see them in a way that ultimately I'm going to ask you by the time we're done, which one of these are you in? Like, if you're in one of these spaces here this evening, which one is it? Well, the first one are those who, they were convicted. I mean, you just get it, right? They heard these things. They were cut to the heart. That's a powerful term of like, man, just got, and then they got, and, and they gnash at him with their teeth. And then you go and you see it. 
verse 57, they cry out with a loud voice and they stop their ears, which is just kind of a funny picture, right? I mean, they probably didn't really do it with their fingers, but I tend to think about it that way. It's like, they're like, la, 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 la. You know, it's like, I'm not listening. You know, I'm not going to pay attention to you. And, and, and then they just, they, they run at him, say, we're not going to listen. And, and they, you know, run at him and they eventually kill him. They grab stones, they lead him out, and they kill him. This is a terrible space. Uh, this is a full mark of rebellion. Uh, this is a mark of those who, who are fighting against God in everything that he has. And, and it carries into to such an extreme measure. And I just want to say again, it's a terrible space. People go there all the time. Stephen's the first one to lay down his life, but there's been hundreds of thousands since. And so many people find themselves here. And people in our world still are much the same. Maybe they don't physically kill, but they still have gotten to this place where it's like, man, I'm angry, I'm not listening, and I want nothing to do with you, and, and sometimes they bring harm. It's a terrible place to be. It's a place of one who's living in that rebellion that, that is a part of this, and it's a sad, it's the worst space uh, to be in the midst of this. But there are others there, or one very specifically, who's not actually throwing stones, but he is approving. Hey, you caught it, most of you know the story tells us in verse 58, they cast him, that is Stephen, out of the city. They stone him, and the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul, well, we also know him as Paul. Yeah, this is going to be Paul the apostle. He's a young man. It doesn't mean he's a kid. It probably means that someone in, the, in his prime. We know he's a part of the Sanhedrin, so he's not young in the midst of it. He's not actually doing it, but somehow he's approving of it. And so they're like, hey, keep our clothes. We're going to go kill him. And Paul's like, go for it. I got it. You know, and, and both just giving his moment of approval and, and, and doing it, even though he's not the one actually at this moment doing it, something changed. If you know the story of Paul, we'll get into more of it over the next couple of weeks. This moment is a life-transforming moment for him. He is, this moment drives him crazy. I mean, from this moment, he becomes incensed. He becomes one that begins to hunt Christians down, dragging them out of their homes. I mean, this moment, I'm convinced that, P that Stephen gets to him. I'm convinced that, you know, words sown by Stephen become one of the life-changing things that get a hold of the Apostle Paul, but today you don't see it. Today, he's just there going, I'm with you. I'm with, I'm with you rejecting Jesus. I I'm in that. And it's a sad place to speak. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're there this evening where you're not like, hey, I'm not killing Christians. I just don't want anything to do with them. You know, it's like, I don't want to be a part of that. It's a scary space to be. It's where Paul was and, and, and yet where he's going to land. Well, we need to keep going. And so we quickly talk about Stephen. And I've already mentioned it to you. He is the very first mar martyr. He lives and he dies for Jesus. Wow. I don't know if that's how you see it. It's how I see it. It's an amazing moment. Um, we don't know for certain, so it'd be hard-pressed to make this 100% chance, but biblically, he's the first Christian to die, the first martyr, the first Christian to die. So if you know something about your kind of biblical history, he's the first one who, what Paul would talk about, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He gets to experience that. Before this point in time, that didn't happen. People who died, they went into what was known as Abraham's bosom. They wait there for Jesus to come and proclaim that to him, which he does between the cross. Bigger story if you know nothing about that. If I just lost you, sorry, track with another time. But others is like, this is the first guy. 
He's the first one to enter into this incredible reality. He's the first one to get to, to, to cross from this life into eternity and see Jesus face to face, and he does it as a martyr. He does it as someone who's living well for Jesus and holding fast to Jesus until that final moment. In fact, everything he does in it is beautifully Christ-like, right? I mean, you're watching this whole thing, and they're doing all this, and he prays a prayer that's so much like Jesus. Lord, don't let this sin, you know, be cast against them. Don't, don't let this land on them. Um, forgive them, you know, and, and he's praying for them as he dies. I don't know where that lands for you. I, I find myself thinking of Jim Elliott, uh, the missionary who also laid down his life uh, in the 1950s, uh, you know, killed by the Aka Indians, but he made one of those incredible statements heading before that. And he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He says, you know what, I'm going I'm to lose my life anyway. I'm losing my life, you know, I'm giving it, I'm surrendering it to it because I'm gaining stuff I will never, you know, you know, that I could never lose. And it was true of his salvation, but it was true of the life that he lived. And there's just something inspiring about this. Now, I don't know what that does for you, and I kind of, we don't have time to spend a, a bunch of time on this, but you know how I wonder? You know, I wonder what the Lord has for us. I wonder where we're going to go. I mean, you know, it's, I, I can remember decades ago t- wondering about this, and so we've still lived in, in a space of grace, but sometimes I wonder, you know, what, what, what's coming to our America? You know, other spaces in, this, in, in our world right now, people are dying for Jesus. Uh, it's happening in North Korea. Uh, it's happening in China. It's happening in Iran. Uh, it's happening in other spaces, and sometimes I wonder. It's like, okay, I wonder if that would be something that would come to America, and I don't know if that scares you. Maybe it should a little bit. But I'll just be honest with you, if I'm going to have to die, this is not a bad way to die. I, I don't know if that's, I hope that's not irreverent in the, in the midst of it or, you know, kind of weird in the midst of it. But I look at Stephen and like, man, I want, I, I'd love to go that road. I either want to live a life that's worthy of that or I would love to be counted. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a good, I mean, there's no fear in that. There's no wonder. I mean, this is a beautiful way to say, I'll live my life fully for Jesus no matter what the cost is. You know, and if, if it costs me my life, I was going to lose my life anyway. You know, why would I not give up what I was going to, you know, lose anyway? Because I want to live for Christ. And there's something for me that Stephen is this good mark of, of, a, of someone who lived and died well. Much we could talk about there, but we need to quickly keep going because we don't just see Stephen, we see Jesus. So there he is in verse 55. Uh, Stephen's there and he says, being full of the Holy Spirit, which is an amazing moment. Like here he is, and yet God is meeting him. Holy Spirit is filling his heart, which was a promise from Jesus, who said, boy, you find yourself in that moment, the Spirit will help you, and he is. He gazed into heaven, he saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and then he's like, look, like I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then he, you know, goes down to verse 59, they stone Stephen, he's calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus meeting, rescuing, um, and without pressing it too hard, it's an interesting thing that Jesus is standing. Um, Most of the other images we get of Jesus in in Revelation of the places, he's sitting. He's sitting at the right hand of the the throne of God. That he's standing, uh, many Bible students take this as honor, um, that Jesus is welcoming Stephen home. Uh, doing so personally, doing so well, 
And that's a beautiful picture. I mean, that's just, that's just a really, really cool picture. I am longing to see Jesus, to hear him so well done, good and faithful servant. But again, watching all of that is fascinating. So we see all of this, but there's one other category I quickly want to give you. You can quickly look over at chapter 8. We're just going to scan down to verse 3, uh, you know, just uh, uh, verse 2 in the midst of this. I think I put verse 3 on the screen. Sorry, it's verse 2. Uh, it says, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. So Stephen dies, but the, the really godly people in this moment, they are sad by it. They, 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 they have this moment of honor in the midst of that, and that's a good space to be. See, maybe I want to land here this evening. Because I asked you, you know, in this image, I wonder which category of person you would be. I mean, obviously, we're not Jesus, you know. We're not, not in that space, so that's, that's done, but we long to see him. There are those who are rejecting, those who are either violently opposed to Jesus or kind of, you know, they weren't violently opposed, but they were allowing, uh, and they were fine with that. And if you're in that category tonight, I just, I'm just hoping that God would wake you up say, it's a terrible place to be. You're on the wrong side of eternity. You're on the wrong side of everything. You're on the wrong side of Christ. And if that's you this evening, that God would rescue you from that. But maybe, maybe God's inspiring us to be a Stephen. Maybe he's saying, hey, I, I want to be that. I want to be someone who lives for Jesus so well that if it, if it, if it came down to costing me my life, it would be no problem. Like, that's how I live my life but maybe even just being one who would look on that and say, that's where my heart is. You know, I would look on this, you know, I would, I would look upon it with honor and, and recognition in the midst of this, that the godly, devout people, you know, see this and they weep. And I find myself quickly thinking about this, and some of you are reading through the scriptures with us, and so today you were reading in Ezekiel 9, and you get this interesting kind of picture that this angel uh, is showing the coming judgment of God but God just says to one of the angels, I says, I want you to go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. And it's such a fascinating thing. He says, I want you to go out and find those whose hearts are broken, who hate the sin, hate what's going on, and it grieves them. And in one sense, he says, those are the mark of my people. Those are going to be the mark of those who, who are there. And I kind of find myself finding that myself thinking of, this, of those who saw Stephen die. And that's where they are. It says they make great lamentation. Their hearts are broken over all of this. They're sorry over the midst of this. It's a good space to be. Maybe that's a good space for us to say, hey, that's the side we want to be on. You know, just being willing to live for God and whatever he has, but it's certainly being like, I want to be on the side not fighting you. I want to be on the side, you know, being sad and sorrowful for those who are laying down their life for Jesus, the pain they're going through, but looking on that with great honor. It's a good space for us to be. It's a good space for us to land. So that's where we're going to end. Uh, you, can, you can take your Bibles. We did it. We made it through an entire chapter, a long one. We didn't cover every detail. There was more in there, but you got the feel of it. You heard Stephen's message, his call to, to say, hey, quit fighting God. Like, surrender to his life, and maybe that just needs to meet us this evening, where you would be invited to say, boy, I want to be on the right side of this. I want to be with Stephen. I want to be like, Stephen, I'm with you. Like, let's, you and I together will live for Jesus, or I will be on the side that my heart is with you, that I will cry and weep over, over the, the bad things that are done. I don't want to be on the other side of this who is fighting God. And so once more, if you're there, may God bring you to the right side of Christ. 
that you would recognize him as the hope that we have and not fight, not push away from Christ. So let's ask him for that right now in prayer. Father, we thank you for just your word. And we thank you for Stephen who just spoke poetically, historically, but clearly. God, we've seen a reminder of our own rebellion, our own stubbornness, stiff-neckedness. Lord, rescue us from that. Rescue us from fighting you. Rescue us from rejecting Jesus, you, and all that you are. Bring us to the right side of this in all of eternity. God, I look on Stephen, and I see his good example to the end, and I find myself saying, I, I want to run a race that, that would be worthy of that. And if that just means I'm with those who lament, godly people who, who see and hearts are on the right side of this, May you look and find that, that my heart grieves over the brokenness, grieves over the sin, over the rejection, and and yet longs for you and all that you are. God, would you give us hearts, me heart for that, and draw us to all that you have. We ask for that now, in Jesus' name, amen.